Mark's account of our Lord and the Gentile woman describes how Jesus had sought to conceal himself from the public but could not be hid because this woman, whose daughter had been tormented by a demon, had heard of his presence and had sought him out. In her distress she cried, Have mercy on me! And she did not fail to recognize his royal position, addressing him, O Lord, thou son of David. What? says Matthew 15, 23. He answered her not a word. He who had gone about the cities of Israel helping the oppressed, who had always been so quick to respond to the appeals of the needy, did not even answer this poor soul. And he could be silent with emphasis. Not a word did she receive in response to her cries of distress. His conduct was an open rebuff. He evidently did not mean to show kindness or even courtesy to this woman. His disciples may have understood his action, for the woman was a Gentile. Nevertheless, interceding for her, they, and I'm quoting, besought him, saying, Send her away, that is, dispose of her case, for she crieth after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This is Matthew 15 now, verses 21 to 28. Notice carefully, this was said to his disciples, for he still declined to speak to the woman. He was driving home a lesson she had to learn, that she had no claim on the Son of God, no right to expect help from him. God had given the Gentiles up long ago, when at the Tower of Babel they had made it clear that they did not even wish to retain him in their knowledge. But the record goes on in verse 25. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. The word worshipped here is a strong one in the original. Literally, the woman came and prostrated herself before him. Falling down at his feet, she begged for his help. At this pathetic plea, the Lord was constrained to address her, but still by no means consented to help her. She must first learn the lesson he had begun to teach. Yes, and we must learn it too, we Gentiles in the flesh. This is why the incident is recorded for us in Scripture. Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 says, Wherefore remember, you Gentiles, that ye being Gentiles were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. This is why the Lord seemed so obstinate in his dealings with this Gentile woman. Even now he addresses her only to point out why he should not help her. For the third time we find that negative word, but, used. First she had cried for help, but he answered her not a word. Then his disciples had interceded for her, but he answered and said, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now she falls down at his feet and begs for help that only he can give. But he answered and said, It is not meat. It is not proper or right to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord. Ah, she has learned the lesson and has frankly acknowledged her unworthy position. And here her face shines as she points out that while indeed she has no claim on him, he may, if he will, show mercy to her. 
Yes, we too must learn the lesson. As we have seen, the Gentiles are strangers from the covenants of promise. These promises pertain only to Israel, says Romans 9, 4. Even during the kingdom reign of Christ, when the nations are finally brought to Messiah's feet, <clears throat> it will not be in fulfillment of any promises made to them. It will be fulfillment or in fulfillment of promises made to Israel. This is clearly brought out in Romans 15, 8 and 9, where Paul says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister or a servant of the circumcision, the Jewish nation, <clears throat> for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And so the woman continued pleading, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs that fall from the master's table. What a plea! What faith in both his love and his power! Think of calling the casting out of, that de of a devil crumbs from the master's table. She had showed a keener appreciation of Christ's power to bless than could be found anywhere in Israel. How could we expect the story to close in any other way than it does? Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now we pass from the story of a Gentile woman to the story of a Jewess, also in trouble, but trouble of a very different nature. John 8, 3 and 4 says, The scribes and Pharisees brought unto Christ a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Had they been an uh, honest group with zeal to clean up Jerusalem, there might have been some excuse uh, for their conduct. But they had no such lofty motive. They had sought and apprehended this woman not because they had been so shocked at her conduct or were so zealous for God's holy law. They were out to get him whose holiness had shown up their hypocrisy. And to attain their purpose, they had stooped to this. These base characters really farther from God than the woman they had caught in sin, now set her in the midst, says the record. Not mainly to humiliate her, but him. What despicable iniquity the human heart, yes, the religious heart, is capable of. Having set the woman in the midst, they proceed to remind the Lord that Moses commanded that such should be stoned to death, and then demanded, But what sayest thou? These men were diabolically clever. They reasoned, he's always talking about forgiving sinners. He says that the publicans and harlots will enter the kingdom of God before us. Now we will force him either to acknowledge that this woman should be stoned to death or to openly champion immorality by taking the part of a harlot against Moses. Now this Jewess had a great initial advantage over the Gentile woman of Matthew 15. In Romans 3, 1 and 2, we read, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. It was a great honor to be entrusted with the written law, the revealed will of God. 
And it was a great responsibility, a responsibility which, if violated, would change her position from one of distinct advantage to one of distinct disadvantage. And this is exactly the situation in which this Jewess found herself. The law is the great leveler of all mankind. No one can boast in its presence. Thus this Jewess now stood condemned before the Holy Son of God. The Gentile woman had earnestly sought access to Christ, but to stand before him was the very last thing this Jewess would have wished for. Actually, it was a blessing in disguise for this woman that she had been made so conspicuous. It taught her in another way the same lesson which the Gentile woman had had to learn, that she too stood without claim before the Son of God, without a right to anything but his condemnation. But our Lord proposed to teach her accusers a lesson too. These whom Jesus had sarcastically described as just persons who need no repentance, and had boasted again and again that they were the children of Abraham. Ignoring their demands, he stooped to write on the ground, the woman all the while standing in the midst. What he wrote, we are not told. But the act itself reminds us of the Ten Commandments, for they too were written with the finger of God, says Exodus 31:18. But they were not to be ignored and went on demanding that he give his verdict in the matter. So when they continued asking, they got what they asked for. Verse 7, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Amazing reply, withering rebuke. Consider it carefully. He had not ignored the law or taken the sinner's part against Moses. He had not denied that the woman deserved death by stoning. He had simply pointed out that they were in a rather poor position to bring the charge, since their own hands were soiled. Yes, the woman should be stoned, and so should they. Thus they themselves were caught in the trap they had set for him. Having made his reply, the Lord stooped down to write on the ground again and let that simple sentence do its work. And now we read in verse 9, And when they heard it, being convicted by their own consciences, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. What a combination we have here now. A great sinner and a great Savior. When Jesus lifted up himself again, the record goes on, and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. What other course would we have expected the Lord to take? The scribes and Pharisees had brought this woman to Christ to judge, but now they were not even there to press the charge. They had left the courtroom in the midst of the trial. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. That was what really mattered. What the scribes and Pharisees said or thought about her really mattered nothing now. 
He had freely forgiven her. And thus she had received help from Christ, not because she belonged to the chosen race, uh, not because of any goodness in her, for a wicked woman condemned by the law. She had forfeited all claim to consideration on these grounds. He had helped her just as he had helped the Gentile woman in his own sovereign grace. But the question may well be asked at this point whether the free pardon of a convicted criminal was quite in accord with justice. And to bring the question nearer home, is God's free forgiveness, yes, justification of sinners who believe in Christ today, quite in accord with justice? In Proverbs 17:15, God tells how he feels about those who would break up this very foundation of justice. He says there, He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. This is why all the sinners turning over new leaves, all his good works and religious performances, all his penance and tears and prayers, fail to make him acceptable in God's sight. But what is this we find as we examine the rest of the record? Did not God condemn the righteous in the case of Christ? Is it not true that God allowed him to die in shame and disgrace on Calvary's cross for sins he had never committed? Do we not read that it pleased the Lord to bruise him and that he hath put him to grief? Isaiah 53, 10. Is it not written that God hath made him to be sin? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And what is more, does not God justify the wicked every day and even offer them free forgiveness and justification no matter how guilty? Do we not read in Romans 4, 5, To him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith, his believing, is counted for righteousness. How can he do this without violating his own rules of justice? Well, this question brings us to still another occasion on which our Lord declined to answer. And here we find why our Lord could, not, could help both Gentile and Jew, and why even today he can justify those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and still maintain perfect justice. This time it is the Lord himself who is in trouble. He stands on trial for his life before the representatives of Hebrew and Roman law. Think of it. They sitting in judgment upon him. First he stands before Caiaphas, the Jew, charged with all sorts of crimes. Matthew 26, verses 62 and 63 say, And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. Next he stood before Pilate, the Gentile, while a multitude clamored for his death. And Matthew 27, verses 12 to 14, tell the story. When he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him, Never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. But why did he not answer these charges. 
Why did he stand there speechless, taking the blame for sins he had not committed? Picturing the scene, one feels like crying, Lord, answer for thyself. Tell him the truth. Expose the wickedness of these contemptible creatures. Surely the Lord, knowing uh, his accusers as he did, could have uncovered evidence which would have sent them fleeing from the scene. Why didn't he do so? Because he had come into the world especially to die for man's sins. Had the sinners of all ages been there and accused him of their sins, he would not have said one word in self-defense. Yes, had you and I been there charging him with our sins, seeking to shift the blame of our sins upon him, he would still have remained speechless. So infinite was his love for us, so great his determination to bear our judgment for us. See him standing there. Yes, he is guilty, not in himself, but as our representatives. For he stands there not merely for us, but as us, taking the full responsibility for our sins. Thus God can dispense grace, uh, dispense grace to sinners because he dispensed judgment upon sin at Calvary. Neither the Gentile woman nor the fallen Jewess understood this, of course, for it had not yet taken place. Indeed, God's great purpose in Calvary was to be testified in due time through Paul some years later after the crucifixion, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 4-7. Nevertheless, it was the basis on which he could justly help both women, and it is the basis on which he has ever justified sinners, whether Jews or Gentiles. My dear unsaved friend, will you call on God to save you for Jesus' sake? He's ready to save you, but you must call. Will you do it now? God's word says there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile, not before God, for, he says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in Romans 10:12, he says, there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Will you call? Will you say, Lord Jesus, save me? I believe that thou didst die for me. I accept thee as my Savior and Lord. Do it, and salvation is yours. As Paul said to the trembling Philippian jailer, simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Now, in Ephesians 1.9, we read that God has made known unto us the mystery or the secret of his will. While the knowledge of the mystery revealed through Paul has a profound practical effect on our lives where physical and material matters are concerned, it has the greatest effect of all in the realm of the spiritual. How the knowledge of the mystery unravels the perplexing tangle which theologians have left us with respect to God's message and program for today. 
how the teachings of Scripture regarding other dispensations fall into their proper places and assume their proper proportions when viewed in the light of this sacred secret. To how many problems it is the one solution. To how many doors the only key. After our Lord's resurrection, he appeared to his eleven apostles and, I'm quoting, opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures, that is, the Old Testament scriptures, which were all they had at that time. This statement from Luke 24:45 does not imply that the apostles now understood every detail and had no more to learn, for our Lord continued teaching them for 40 days more. It implies, rather, that they now understood the prophetic plan and had to handler, uh, had in their hands, I should say, the key to the events which were transpiring about them. So it is with the mystery revealed by the glorified Lord through Paul, the chief of sinners, saved by grace. An understanding of this sacred secret does not imply a mastery of every detail of Scripture, or even all those Scriptures relating to this present age or dispensation. It implies rather an understanding of the long-hidden plan, which is the secret of God's dealings with men in every age, but especially with men in this present evil age, as Paul calls it. In the interpretation of Scripture, there's really only one alternative to the understanding and acknowledgement of the truth of the mystery, and that is the so-called spiritualization of the Old Testament promises and prophecies. The whole uh, spiritualization theory came about by a failure to recognize this secret proclaimed by Paul. Theologians observed that the prophecies about Christ and Israel in the Old Testament began to be fulfilled in the New. Exactly as predicted, our Lord was born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem, was brought up in Nazareth, later went about preaching the gospel and doing good and working miracles. But in spite of this, and in spite of the fact that both physically and legally he was of David's royal line, he was hated, plotted against, and delivered to death. He was crucified, buried, raised, ascended to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit all in literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But at this point, the further literal fulfillment of prophecy as to David's, or as to Christ's return to reign as king on the throne of David over the house of Jacob in the land of Palestine in Jerusalem, this seemed to cease. Thus it was that the theologians concluded that the Spirit could not have meant exactly what he said in this latter list of prophecies. They concluded that by the throne of David, God must have meant the throne which Christ now occupies at the Father's right hand. And as to Canaan, well, that must mean heaven. And the church today must be a sort of a spiritual Israel. And uh, the predictions of his exaltation as king over Israel really refer, they say, to his present position as head of the church. But such arbitrary altering of the plain word of God to make it fit preconceived plans should never be called the spiritualization of Scripture, 
There's nothing spiritual about failing to take God at his word. <clears throat> and surely it is not spiritual but carnal and presumptuous to change the written word of God into what God has not said. Actually, the so-called spiritualization of the scriptures is the mother of heresies. The evil of this system of interpretation lies in the following facts. First, it leaves us at the mercy of theologians. If Old Testament prophecies do not mean what they obviously naturally seem to mean, who has the authority to decide what they do mean? If one theologian can make the land of Canaan, the throne of David, and the house of Jacob all mean something else, can't he interpret practically any scripture to mean something else? And theologians have done so. Then how can we be sure of any doctrine, however vital? How can we be sure that Romans 4, 5, or Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, those blessed verses of salvation, can't be altered in the same, quotes, spiritual way? then perhaps salvation, after all, is not by grace. Perhaps it is by works. Perhaps these scriptures, too, really mean something else. And just as we are supposed to be spiritual Israel, who knows whether some group in the future may not be called spiritual us. <laughs> Thus, by the so-called spiritualization of the scriptures, the theologians of tomorrow might wrest from us what today's theologians have agreed to allow us. So... It will do us no good in that case to turn to the scriptures themselves for light, for the scriptures don't mean what they say, and only trained theologians can interpret them for us. Second, the so-called spiritualization of the Bible affects the veracity of God. It is a thrust at his honor, his integrity. Consider, for example, the Abrahamic covenant. Now it is only just that the promisee be given a fair understanding of the promise, or at least that the promise does not mislead him into expecting what he's not going to receive, for he will have the right to claim exactly what he has been promised. Now Moses did claim the promises which God had made to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob about their seed. In Deuteronomy 1.8 we find him saying to Israel, Go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers, Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, to give unto them and to their seed after them. Now, if this promise, the promise that Israel will someday or was to and is to uh, occupy the land of Canaan, if this cannot be taken at his, its face value, if God didn't mean what he said, if he led Abraham's seed to expect what he did not intend to give them, was he honest? How then can we depend upon his prophecies? Or promises. Peter writes to the believers of the dispersion, We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. But no prophecy is sure if another idea is intended than the one it conveys. <coughs> Indeed, such a practice would be nothing short of deliberate deception. Thus, while man's arbitrary altering of the plain word of God may be called the spiritualization of the scriptures, it actually casts reflections on the integrity, the honesty of God. To this there can only be one reply, the reply of Romans 3, 3 and 4. What if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the 
faith, the fidelity, the trustworthiness of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, and every man a liar. Now third, this so-called spiritualization of the Bible endorses apostasy, error, heresy. When uh, Luke 1, 32 and 33, for example, is spiritualized, the liberal says, fine, the throne of David and the house of Jacob must be viewed in a spiritual sense, and so must the context. Christ was not really born of a virgin. This picture is drawn merely to impress on us the purity of his character. And the liberal denies the resurrection in the same way, agreeing with the, in quotes, spiritualizer, that Christ will not really occupy the throne of David. He goes on to argue, neither was he really raised from the dead. The scriptures which say so must be interpreted otherwise. And here come the members of the various cults claiming to comprise the 144,000 Israelites of the book of Revelation. Ask one which tribe he is from, because they're all mentioned there, 12,000 from each. And he'll explain that not physical, but spiritual Israelites are referred to. And one of the largest denominations in the United States employs the same reasoning. She seeks to establish the kingdom of Christ on earth. It may seem at first that in this she leans in a, uh, to a literal rather than a spiritual interpretation of prophecy, but this is not so. For Christ is not now occupying David's literal throne, nor is any denomination literal Israel or the literal kingdom. Heresies, beloved, one after another have risen and gained headway, not through denial, but through perversion, through changing the written word of God through failing to take God at his word and changing it uh, to harmonize with human theories. Now I say, there's only one alternative. Why have sincere godly theologians down through the centuries altered the plain word of God as to the kingdom reign of Christ? Was it their intention to pervert the scriptures? I do not believe so. Many of them were godly men. Their course was the only alternative to a recognition of something they didn't understand. What Paul calls the mystery, hid from ages and generations, but made known in his epistles. Had these men of God listened to the Spirit's word through Paul, they would not have found it necessary to alter the Old Testament promises and prophecies to make them harmonize with the present dispensation of grace they would have learned that when prophetically all was ready for the outpouring of God's wrath at Pentecost and Christ returned to break the nations and dash them in pieces with a rod of iron, when prophetically all was ready for his return to judge and reign, God graciously interrupted the prophetic plan to do something he had never predicted, saving Saul of Tarsus, the leader of the world's rebellion, and using him to usher in the dispensation of the grace of God, as he says in Ephesians 3, 1 to 3, with its gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20, 24, by which Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to God in one body by the cross, Ephesians 2, 16, and with Christ as their living head, Colossians 1, 18, and their position and prospect in the heavenlies, at God's right hand, Ephesians 1, 3. 
as to those among uh, Bible-believing Christians uh, who repudiate the spiritualization method yet do not see or acknowledge the mystery in Paul's distinctive apostleship, there is a constant state of consternation. To maintain their confused positions, they are forced to alter plain scriptures individually in a manner which they themselves would not dare to call spiritualization. So the great alternative remains the same, beloved. Take God at his word, recognizing that the prophetic plan was interrupted, a planned interruption, of course, by the dispensation of grace or to pervert the scriptures and dishonor God. As the so-called spiritualization theory is the mother of heresies, an acknowledgement and a knowledge of the mystery, the sacred secret revealed through Paul, is the answer to every heresy and the explanation of God's plans and purposes which can make the Bible such a delight. When uh, the truth of the justification of sinners by grace through faith alone was recovered in Luther's day, those who saw it exclaimed, how it opens the scriptures. Later, when John Darby and others recovered the truth of the Lord's imminent return, those who received it again explained or exclaimed, how it opens the scriptures. And today we know this from our voluminous correspondence. Today, as the truth of the mystery is being recovered, those who receive it exclaim once more, and with greater reason than ever, how it opens the scriptures. Never before has Bible study proved such a delight to those who are willing to go on in the truth. Never before did it present such a challenge. Oh, that God's people had a passion only to know God's word and make it known. If they did, they would find the mystery revealed through Paul the answer for our times. But the ignorance of the Bible among Christians, and yes, even Christian leaders, yes, their indifference toward it is appalling. May God yet grant a true spiritual awakening among us believers, a renewed interest in what he has said, a renewed desire to understand and carry out his word before the golden opportunity has been snatched away from us. So much for the mystery and Bible study. Now let's ask how the mystery revealed through Paul affects our prayer life. What makes sincere believers claim such passages as Matthew 21, 22, Matthew 18, 19, and James 5, 15 with their unqualified promises of unanswered prayer. Ask them, and invariably they will answer, that they claim them because they are in the Bible, failing to rightly divide the word of truth, failing to see that the prophetic purpose in view in all of these cases has been suspended for the present age because the rejection of Christ and the bringing in of the dispensation of grace has, has made this necessary. In all honesty, such people must admit that even believing prayer is not always answered in the infirmative today, that the agreement of two believers on earth does not guarantee an answer to anything they may ask, even though it says so, that the prayer of faith does not always save the sick, 
Indeed, that to this very day men go on dying, believers, sincere believers, seldom living to be even a hundred years of age, an age which would have been uh, considered childhood in the reign of Christ and will be. Read Isaiah 65, 20. Well, don't you see how the knowledge of the mystery revealed through Paul changes all this? The teachings of the Pauline epistles exactly fit the situation in which we find ourselves today. And as we study them, we praise God that he does not grant all we ask, even in faith, and gladly leave the ordering of our lives entirely to him. In the darkness of this present evil age, we recognize Romans 8:26 that we do not know what to pray for as we ought. I'm quoting that. And we acknowledge Romans 8:28 that God is working everything out for our, our good. So meantime we practice Philippians 4:6, putting aside anxiety and making our requests known to God with thanksgiving. And so we experience if we practice it we certainly do experience the next verse, Philippians 4 the peace of God, which passes understanding, keeping, garrisoning our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Oh, I could go on. How this great message affects our conduct. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. For the believer today, it is a knowledge that sin has already been paid for, and that in Christ we paid for our sins at Calvary. I'm crucified with Christ, he says, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of, not faith in. Our faith in him is so wavering. But his faithfulness toward us, that's what counts. The faith, that's subjectively speaking, what he is, his fidelity, his trustworthiness. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ah, it affects our testimony, too. Ah, now we can say with Paul, now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. You may be saved, dear friend, without works, without religious works, the deeds of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. We're justified by faith in Christ, who paid for the broken law for us. How it affects our fellowship. By one spirit, Paul says, we have all been baptized into one body. Get that. By the Holy Spirit. This is not an ordinance for the remission of sins. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts. Finally, how it affects our suffering for Christ. Ah, what little suffering we do is a joy to us. And we call it with Paul the fellowship of his suffering. 